we've, we are entering a new phase of our discipline. Like this is, we've crossed a chasm that, um, yeah, that we won't go back uh, to, to our old world ever again. Welcome to Designing the Robot Revolution. This week, we're speaking to Mark Fontaine, the host of the podcast, The Service Design Show. Today, we're going to explore the twin topics of how can service designers use AI and automation to improve their workflow and how can we design better automation through service design. My name is Jacob Magnell. With me, David Griffith-Jones. Enjoy. So, Mark, we are avid listeners of the Service Design Show, and we've noticed that in the last few episodes, you've been talking a lot about AI and service design. And we see that it broadly falls into two camps. There's service designers working with AI and talking about the importance of having that human-centered perspective when doing a technological innovation. And there's some great examples of where service designers really have to play a key role in that. And then the second type of conversation, if you were to divide it, is how service designers are using AI tools in their day-to-day work. And I think they're two different sides of the same coin. Uh, Both involve new technology, AI coming in, and service designers can can make use of it, but we're also of use uh, when developing it. Can you just tell me a bit about how this has come into your consciousness and how you see this evolving? Mm. Yeah, sure. It's definitely something that's been on my radar for a a long time. Um, for a matter of context, I think it helps to, to people know that I, uh, I'm i not a designer by trade. Uh, I am a software engineer. That was my study. I have a bachelor degree in uh, software engineering. Uh, I left that field pretty early uh, as a profession. I still do it as a hobby uh, someday. Uh, but I always found it fascinating how how little use of technology the service design space is making. I've been in this field since 2006 or something like that. And uh, it always had and has this sort of human, very human nature, very analog, maybe even very romantic uh, touch to it, which I think is great. And I think I even rebelled against using technology for a very long time and sort of I got fed up with with uh, technology. Um, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I was always curious, like, how could modern technology facilitate the modern design process? And this isn't something new, right? Computer-aided design, that term, CAD, that's been here. I don't know. I didn't research Wikipedia, but I guess since... 1970s, 1980s, where people building bridges, building homes have used computers to aid them in the design process. Like it's just going from a pen and paper into a computer that helps you to do calculations, make things more accurate. That's been going on for quite a long time. And I was always like in the back of my mind thinking like, what would computer-aided design be for service design? So... Yeah, that's it. Have you got any teasers of what CAD would look like for service design? 
Um, are there any examples that you've you've thought of? Yeah, so? yeah, sure. Uh, and I think it's coming into fruition in the last months, maybe even last few years. Um, we have to look at the design process and the different modes and the different stages in the design process and see like, what are we doing there? Uh, what are the challenges? What could be enriched? What could be made easier? What could be sped up? Uh, and there are tons of examples and I'd love to dive in and I'm curious to hear your ideas about this, but let's just take, take one example of doing research, right? Doing user research, doing field research. That's a very qualitative thing to do. You get a lot of stories. You maybe have photos uh, of people. They may be do, doing diary studies. And um, for me, that always felt like, okay, how, like, what can a computer do here? It, it can't possibly come up with meaning or with insights because you have to read through the stories. You have to be in the context. You have to see these people uh, doing things in order to understand your field notes. Now, I think we're getting very, very close where computers and things like natural language processing and large language models are able to extract some meaning from very rich stories and uh, maybe provide insights that you wouldn't think of. So that's just, just one example. I think in the research stage, we can already use natural language processing to come up with new insights to help us analyze rich data. Yeah. I think, Mark, you mentioned on one of your LinkedIn posts about um, think about what Dali can do now in terms of mocking up a concept or whether it, when it's describing personas, again, Mark, this came from you. Um, you use GPT-3, I think, to kind of create a first version of a persona story. And it was pretty good, wasn't it? It, it was, it was uh, um, uh, uncanny good. That's the word I was looking for. Like uh, the moment, uh, and like maybe I should have said it as a preface with regards to AI and natural language processing and all these things, I'm I'm by by far any expert. I've just started playing around with these things maybe three months ago, four months ago, like really getting my hands dirty. Um, but sort of you learn quick. And the thing I would encourage everyone to do, and I think that was also sort of the gist of my post, just start playing around with it. So with the story of that was written by uh, GPT-3, I just put in something, a prompt, and didn't have much expectation of it. And then when you see the text appearing on your screen and actually it makes sense and it reads like something that could have been written by, well, a, a mid-level designer, you're like, and, and it happened in a, in a matter of seconds. You're like, we've, we are entering a new phase of our discipline. Like this is, we've crossed a chasm that, um, yeah, that we won't go back uh, to to our old world ever again. Hmm. When you get that high quality or relatively high quality text as a persona text, and the likelihood of it fitting perfectly with your findings might be low, but then you can go in and do the design work and and format that and change it so that it actually fits with 
the the results and the the where the project is i, I would um to comment on that i think it was uh, one of the recent more maybe episode 152 or 56 one of those two on the service design show uh and this relates to your comment maybe it doesn't fit perfectly um i would question like does it fit perfectly if you as a service design professional write it like if if you jacob uh, would write a story it would be different than david's story like which one is true which one is correct so the the question that was raised in that service design show episode was like um, it was about ethics but when is it unethical not to use a machine to come up with a story which is mm. probably less biased has more information um i don't have the answer but i've found that a very thought-provoking question i mean i think that's that's fascinating uh i i'm, I'm taking it back a little bit so I, I i purely in order to defend my own position here which i'm not sure that i even agree with but i would say if i am the designer in this case and i am the one addressing my stakeholder then my bias could be valuable because it's my bias so there might be an inherent value in that because I'm the I'm actually putting my name on it. Um. <laughs> and then and then I would add to that if you're able if you have such a level of self awareness that you're able to articulate your biases, all good for you. Like if you can say this story is written by me and the way you recognize my perspective and my worldview in the story by is through this lens i look at the world at this lens i think if you can articulate that mm. you're adding a lot of value how many people can actually articulate it are self-aware enough i don't know maybe that's actually a use case we get um an algorithm to catalog what i write and have it tell me what biases i have <laughs> that would be, uh maybe a rabbit hole that we could go very deep into i uh, I'm not an AI expert, but I'm, it is definitely sounds like something that is totally doable nowadays. Yeah. On the note of AI experts, because none of us are, but we have uh, definitely shown enthusiasm about the whole space. Uh, do we have to be? Do we as designers have to be? Do we have to become data scientists? Mm -hmm. Uh no but uh it's just it, it isn't for me any different than um we knowing how to speak the language of business stakeholders or that we are able to communicate with people who are working on digital touch points um as a service design professional you're often the connector, the orchestrator. You just have to know enough to be able to relate to other experts and know when to pick up the phone and who to call. Um, so it technology, like it's, it's a tool. AI is a tool. Natural language processing is a tool. And uh, I think it's very helpful if you are aware of the limitations of the abilities and um yeah that's that's my take on this before we um kind of go back to this uh, what with the lack of well, the slowness of adoption we've, we've mentioned a few 
examples of how a service designer could use um, AI machine learning in their work. Are there, are there any other examples we want to put on the table? Um, we haven't maybe ideation or even prototyping. Are there some examples we could talk about? Yeah, those were the other two that sort of crossed my mind. And uh, I would be super curious. Like, I think if we unleash the uh, service design community on this question, like what would they come up with? But with regards to ideation, um, you already mentioned uh, Dali, but all the image generation algorithms uh, that are out there right now, like what is it, the uh, AI generative AI, I think that's the uh, term. I can just imagine that you're sitting in a workshop or you're preparing a workshop on a specific topic and you're looking for visuals that will help to sensitize the participants. Nowadays, you have to spend hours on Google Google image search and Flickr and uh, uh, all those other photo platforms hoping to find that one photo of that one person standing next to i don't know whatever and now you just type it in and uh you you get an image Mm. and it's not even uh it's not the speed is just one thing you can generate 200 images of a man riding a horse in in spain or something like that or a woman for that sake but it's also like uh you can very easily use it to uh, make ideas words tangible That's one of the big challenges. That's why we have so many uh, graphic designers and people who are able to communicate visually. We deal with so many intangible things that uh, I, I, like this is a no brainer for me of using image generation to make intangible concepts tangible really quickly. So adding adding to this, like um, maybe, maybe visuals is, uh, uh, a space where AI has more potential in the service design space because visuals are subjective. Like uh, that, there is an ele- there is always an element of personality in uh, the visualization. Whereas with we mentioned previously research or uh, synthesis, like it feels that there is more truth to. That, like it can be uh, right or wrong while an image could be less right or more in the direction that you're looking for less in the direction that you're looking for i don't with qualitative research that can still be the case but i feel like images and visuals are are way easier for us as a community to accept as something that is that is generated by a computer I think so. And the, the examples you gave there, Mark, of an ideation session um, to, to inspire, as you say, right now, you'd have to you have to find obscure, you know, man playing golf with a frog type thing on. And you can try and find something that somehow triggers that image you want the participants to have. But literally now you can write whatever you want into one of these image generators and it, and it gets it. So it inspires, it can set that context for inspiring. Um, and also... Um, early stage concepts kind of bringing to life uh kind of a zebra service in a car hire place if you wanted to do that for whatever reason all of a sudden now you can have that visualization so there's also the aspect of cost like actual money cost you can now have very competent illustrations in just a random workshop somewhere and it doesn't 
cost that much. I mean, imagine if you would take in 10 graphic designers to sit in a workshop and just illustrate. It would take longer time and the quality would be fantastic. But yeah. That's- the, yeah, the, the thing that we discussed and you mentioned rightfully so is you will have to be able to give this image generator or even story generator, whatever generator you're using, um, sort of the correct prompt. That's not any different than you would have to prompt the actual person who needs to draw something, but that's going to be the next sort of discipline or maybe even art form. Like, how do you how do you prompt these algorithms to do to output the stuff that you want to do? I feel that that's that's going to be a field in itself. Yeah, mm. there's been because there's been a bit of furore around. Um, do these image generators steal uh, human creativity from history and now repackage it? And I think that it's a very interesting ethical argument about that. But in this article I read, it was saying, well, actually, it's the commands still are still, are still that's where the creativity is happening. So there was an example of a, a little girl who won some art competition by coming up with some very clever little wording. So there was the creativity, but in the end, the creativity isn't her painting a picture. It's her thinking of the command, which is a whole new type of creativity. One one kind of other, I hesitate to say final, because I think there could be a, a lot more, but one other area within the going back to what Mark originally said of let's look at the different stages of a service designer's work and and, and you see the opportunities by looking at the processes we go through. Uh, what it is around prototyping. So it, the most obvious example of this, um, but it could be applied to a physical service as well that has no digital interface. But if you are designing something with a good old app or a website, you can now create a prototype and test that and have the interface be changed in the background by an AI that is learning from how users are interacting in real time and making real time changes to the interface. So it takes away a whole extra step of that planning of different types of versions of a prototype. You can have an AI powered self-learning prototype, which will probably end up in learnings that we never have got to in a more structured way. Do you love this podcast? If so, you can do one thing to really help us out. Share this episode with someone that would really like it. Thank you. Are there any other um, any other types before we move on to the next part of this conversation? Any other kind of ideas or things we've seen or been inspired by about how service designers could use this in their work? There's one thing I think it's worth mentioning, and it's not related to AI, but... Uh to augmented reality or virtual reality. This is something that I still, I feel that this is still quite far out, but nevertheless interesting to explore. Um, How could we use virtual reality to prototype new uh, spaces? Uh, And basically, obviously, we're not prototyping the space we're trying to prototype the experience in that space that's the that's the difficult thing with service design and always has been like how do you prototype experiences and we see the classic things are role play or a lot of uh tools and methodologies borrowed from theater like uh, that's that's where they prototype experiences um 
I don't see AR and VR coming into this really quickly for the general public or for the broad majority of professionals, but I definitely can see how there is a specific group within our field that hugely benefit from this. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I've seen um, my sister's having a new kitchen and she went and got three or four different quotes, but the one she's gone for is the one who's given her VR experience where she can show it to people, but also references how she was able to go in, get a feeling for how the light would look and where everything was. So that crafting of the experience, communicating that experience to her, the customer in this sense, and they, and it was very powerful in making her choose it, but extend that maybe to um, an airport or a, a cafe where you can actually prototype different experiences that happen to you as a customer in that in a fabricated environment. That does yeah. sound you know, like great potential. So there. yeah, um, the, the the sort of the narrative that I see in my mind is: let's imagine you're building a million multi-million dollar hospital, right? Huge investment. And where you could prototype the users or the patient's journey, in this case, through the physical building uh, before there's any brick and mortar here. So let's imagine uh, you're building a childcare hospital. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if you could walk a kid through the entire experience moving from the front door to the hallways to, I don't know which room, and then sort of see and ask and observe like what are the scary moments here where is there a lack of information like who is she meeting across the hall like uh again maybe maybe uh, this is especially relevant for a younger generation who's already growing up with technology and who would be very comfortable with a vr headset i don't know like but especially in those kind of situations where there are big investments, there's a lot of stay at stake. Why not? Right. I think it's a great idea. And I'm also thinking about environments that are maybe hard to reach or hard to do testing in like some like industrial environments. It could be very hard to, to have the real do testing in the real world, but it opens up possibilities there. I mean, this really excites me. If anyone listening has any ideas about how they might use technology like this ai automation or kind of combinations with other technology please get in touch with us and let us know your ideas we're super curious there is all this enthusiasm and excitement and i think we we have all kind of you know it's it's recent for us where we've been kind of seeing the possibilities and, and all three of us are playing around with it but we had a, we had a question in preparing for this workshop. We we told um, our audience that Mark was coming on, and we had a question from Joe, who asked, "What's the what's the single largest obstacle to adopting Bean, and what will it be in the future?" So, what has stopped the service design community adopting this type of technology up until today? But then, is it going to be a different thing that's stopping them adopting in the future? Mark, have you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But uh, sort of making broad assumptions, and we could we could do a survey around this, but uh, making some broad adoptions, I think it's, um, one, it's lack of awareness that these things are already out there. Um, so um, 
you, you can't use what you don't know. Uh, and the other thing is, I think for a very long time, there was a level of friction of integrating these tools into the design process, which it wasn't worth it. Like the, the payoff, uh, yeah, it wasn't worth the, the, the cost, the energy, maybe the, the quality wasn't there. Um, and I feel especially that last thing is like so rapidly changing. That's, that's, that's changing by, by the day, by the week. I mean, I think one example of, of it getting hard to keep up with that is actually just the example of, of podcasting, because if you want to do something uh, in this space, it's it's pretty fair to say that someone is at least marketing the, the way to do it, um, uh, editing stuff uh, just from text prompt and having that sound as if it was Mark saying something that he didn't say in the episode he was uh, running. I haven't had the courage or time to try that stuff out, really. Uh, but I could see that also being a, a very good thing to be using when presenting to stakeholders. Uh, I'm not saying we should type out things that people haven't said, but having the possibility to edit down things uh, that we've heard. If, say, we record a conversation with a stakeholder and we ask them permission and all of that, and, and we have these software that enables the stakeholder to actually hear the voice in a well-formatted, nice way that doesn't detract from the experience. I think that can be a very strong thing. And and as you say, it's difficult to know that this stuff is around because I can see the value as a service designer, but I know of it because of podcasting. Uh, and it's it's difficult to 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 yeah, just know that all of that is there. So that's another really good use case, I think, there, Jacob. Great one, really. If you're having voice of the customer and we all know the challenge of having a, someone talking, but it's far too long. They've got great content in there that actually you could use AI tools to create in their own voice a kind of a summarized version and actually make it um, tighter. I think that's a really nice example. But if we if we come back then to Joe's question. So Joe and Mark gave a good answers there. What, what stopped the adoption so far? A lack of awareness. People just the, the community are not aware enough of what is possible. Um, that things have been rapidly changing. It's kind of if you were up to date two years ago, you're out of date by now. And that up until recently, the level of friction to integrate these tools into your ways of working was probably a bit too much effort for the reward. Now, I think we all agree that last point has certainly changed in the last months years so let's imagine we crack the prop we crack this we we, we um, change the community becomes super aware of all the tools the level of friction is reduced what in the future then is potentially still going to be holding us back realizing all of this potential that we as a design community could get from ai and automation yeah, if I can be bold and a bit blunt, I think it's going to be sort of the God complex that uh, that we still think that we can outsmart the computer, that we're better. Like, obviously, if I analyze the research data, it's, it will be more valuable or will be more true. Or how can an image generator 
generate an image like the specific one that I'm looking for. So like holding on to uh, sort of the physical craft and, 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 and we have to get back to the previous point we made here. Like the goal isn't to replace the professional. That's, that's not what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for a hundred percent accuracy or like we have to be very pragmatic and practical about this. How can you use it in your day-to-day work that will make your life easier, that will help you to make more impact? Uh, it's it's a means to an end and use it to your advantage. Like it, even if it helps you just, I don't know, 5%, hmm. why not? Like it again, it doesn't have to replace the design professional. It shouldn't. Isn't- it won't. Do you have any tasks, Mark, where you think like a designer do, like where where do we do like really mind-numbing stuff that could, where we could attack? What should we focus on? What should we develop? Oh, I thought you were going to ask a different question, but I like this one as well. Uh, And uh, I haven't been uh, in the service design uh, space as a practitioner for, I don't know, last three, four years. So... uh, but I do speak to a lot of uh, practitioners and um, like if you if you just look at the things that are very time consuming in our craft is like we all we already probably mentioned everything like gathering data, doing research, analyzing data. Um, well, maybe those are the things <laughs> like gathering data, analyzing data, sense making, whether that's in your initial research stage, but also we mentioned uh, ideation, you also generate information in, I don't know, in your mirror board or in your workshop, you have to do something with that. Those are time intensive activities within our field. Um, I don't know if they are mind numbing. Some of them are really, uh, sort of enriching. So yeah. Gotcha. What was the question you thought I would ask you? Uh, uh, I think you were going to ask me, uh, what is the thing that we are still able to do better than uh, technology? Like, what's the, what's the thing that we can't replace? I, I have one for you there. I think the discussion with other designers and other stakeholders, like actually speaking to and coming up with a, a consensus decision on something, a uh, detail or other things i think that's one thing where i want to spend more time so if we can find stuff to automate away and do that more i'm i'm happy so what i'm hearing you say and that's my interpretation of of your uh answer is relationship building like working with people and knowing what you need knowing what somebody else needs uh and sort of building that mental graph of your stakeholders uh, uh yeah i think that's 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 ba- that, that is a form of research that you have internalized, but uh, I don't see that being replaced very soon. So I find this subject really, is it meta the right way to describe it? That we're often, Jacob and I, we're talking to other professionals who, and we're talking to them about how their role is, is being impacted by AI and automation. Um. Uh, you know, you've got accountants and lawyers and graphic designers and project managers, and we're talking to them about how, you know, they can embrace this more and we see their resistance. And then I find it really funny that when it turns on me and my profession, I feel the same resistance. So where's that coming from? I think it's insecurity. 
I think it is, um, what, what does this mean for me? Am I going to be out of a job? Um, does this reduce my, uh, influence, my ability to, to work? I think it is whether you're an accountant, a lawyer or a service designer, I think I'm honestly reflecting here. I think it's, I think it's a bit, um, scary that you could be out of work. I think there is another mechanism to this as well. And this is something that I've actually spoken to to you, David, about so long ago, uh, five years ago in our first project, that it's when you're in the middle of all these processes, it's difficult to sort of differentiate that you're actually in a process. You're just doing stuff. You're uh, doing your accounting. And and it's it's hard to see how any of that could be automated because we are so used to doing it. So it's very hard to, to sort of untangle that and make sense of it in a way that it becomes a neat little process map that you can actually start attacking one single task there. And I think that's what I'm guilty of hmm. being sort of in the mode of, oh, well, it's fine for you to be automate your thing, but my thing is very special, very, very special, and it it can't be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's something where I need to sort of realize to check myself because that's likely not true at the pace we're we're seeing things transform now. It's great for us to get the empathy for the other people and other roles we're working with who are grappling with how automation is going to impact their work by thinking about how we feel about it our side kind of related to what you said there jacob i think it's um so there's the there's the there's the fear element there's the um discovering an able ability to see the opportunities when you're kind of in the middle of the process and kind of related to that is when you're busy delivering when you fall back on the ways of working that you're used to doing like so in, unless you have time or incentive to try out new techniques and you're under somewhat pressure, you, you're going to default to the way it's always been done, which again, we see with accountants, lawyers, graphic designers, as much as service designers. But I think that that's part of my honest reflections on why I personally haven't gone further. So this, and this is a very important thing that I also recognize is uh, the ability to or the space to play around to 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 mess around with these new tools I'm in a fortunate position where I can spend a few hours maybe not per day but per week on just just testing these things out I like the risk to me is pretty low and I have a lot to gain but like if you're if your if your team lead is waiting for you to deliver on research results, like you're you're not going to take the risky route of testing a new tool. You're going to use, like you said, the the thing that you know will give you an, a predicted outcome, even though that outcome might not be or might be suboptimal. I mean, to me, that sort of highlights the responsibility of that team, the fictional team lead, though, uh, to actually give the time to experiment because a designer that can't do research into I, I we talked about this actually when um when we were on the service design show that the the frame of reference i think we touched on that the frame of reference is really a big part of of uh, what a 
designer does. And if we can't expand that horizon, we come become very limited. Uh, so how can we get teams to sort of actually experiment with these tools? Because it's likely that it will bring benefit to them. So is that something, <laughs> have you heard anything about that? Or Yeah, I think so. And I think... Um... I wouldn't know if it's the solution, but a very uh, efficient solution, effective solution is side projects. So uh, whether that's in uh, uh, your employer's time or in your own time, like start a side project just to to figure this st- stuff out. Like, uh, and, and I I see it as a side project for myself, to be honest. Like I do the service design show, um, I give a training, I run a community. But as a side project, I also run service design jobs. And that's a, that's a space for me to experiment with this stuff and it gives me an excuse to like see what's out there, see what's possible. And um, there, is no, there is no way that that will fail. Like that's, that's, that's my side project. And I, I would encourage everybody to have a side project where they can try stuff out and play around. That's a really nice solution for that uh and i hope that teams at companies actually do that together because that's also a thing it's nice to speak to people about that stuff i think something else we can do um is is try to be better at sharing within the community within the service design community in this case around how what we've learned from our own maybe if it's working on side projects or in our own kind of main work we're giving an example uh, through the service design network, but I wonder if there could even be a kind of focus on uh, AI and automation wins and, and losses and, and lessons learned um, that we as a community can share. And then that is a way to kind of reduce the friction to adoption and to increase awareness, even if you you might be working in a very high-pressured environment where you don't get the time and maybe you don't have side projects, but you could learn from what other people have been doing. Um, Mark, we're nearly out of time, just like eight, nine minutes to go. Just quickly, just have you um, have you found any AI or automation with service design jobs that's kind of managed to take away some of the legwork for you there? Hmm. Uh, so the thing that I've been experimenting with, so yes, the answer is yes. And I've been experimenting with large, large language models uh, to analyze open text data that was like... Uh, the initial thing that I already had on my mind when I set out with the survey back in, I don't know, March or something like that. So that's ages ago, but I knew that adding a lot of open text fields would get me in trouble, but I also knew like, okay, that's going to be the perfect excuse to start fooling around with AI. And uh, I even had somebody in, um, in this survey fill, fill out or give me the feedback that it's going to be a nightmare to analyze all this open text data. And I, and I was like, yeah, you just wait and see. Uh, so the way I've been using it is um, uh, I'm using uh, natural language processing to uh, sort of extract keywords from the answers. That's step one. And then I sort of manually check those keywords, maybe add to them. Then I have a list of whatever, uh, anywhere between 20 and 40 keywords. And then I let the AI um, go over each answer and sort of 
uh, label or tag each answer to one of these keywords. So it's really hard to display or to show uh, any meaningful visualization of open text, like the, they are stories. And if you want to show a chart, uh, a bar graph or a bar chart, you need to quantify stuff. And that's how I'm using sort of I'm um, I'm doing the classic research work of like what's in this data and then let's manually tag uh, every answer to one of these uh, labels and then show how many people have tagged, uh, have, a, have an answer that, that relates to, I don't know, salary or colleagues or culture. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a long answer to your question. Yes, I'm using it and mainly to analyze open text data. It's a really good example, actually, of sharing real real examples, because as you were describe, talking then, I actually thought of an example of um, in my work where we have lots of open text fields. And at the moment, it's it's not it's difficult to go through and analyze if that person who responded, she would have the same response. But that's actually a very good area for us to go and look at is those. So really good example. And, and by doing this, uh, one of the things I discovered or I learned is AI is not perfect. Like natural language processing is is far from perfect. And uh, this helps me to sort of next time have my expectations around what I can and can do. So uh, it's not perfect in the sense that things get tagged incorrectly. Um, things get, it, it sometimes it doesn't make sense. And I'm seeing that and I'm sort of uh, now learning, okay, we cannot fully rely on this mechanism or maybe to better answer this i know to which extent we can rely on this mechanism and then i see where the human still needs to be involved um and that's i wouldn't have had that if i didn't experiment if i didn't put it through its paces and actually put it onto a challenge that i'm working fantastic um i would like to say to our listeners that if you are looking for a catalog of designers explaining what it is they do and what they can do for your company or your project the service design show is probably the best way to to find that uh there are countless of episodes uh, not really i think it's 157 episodes mark De depending on when when this gets published but we're around 160 approaching 160 right now Fabulous. And it's a fantastic resource. And it's one of the biggest inspirations for us to actually start talking about this on the air, so to speak, uh, about automation. And uh, if you really want the service design perspective, the service design show is the place to go. Uh, Mark, please tell us about another thing that we can find from you. You have so many things. Mm. <laughs> I have so many things. Well, uh, I'm to be honest, I'm trying to simplify my life and get things back to <laughs> A manageable size. Uh, I think the noteworthy things uh, is like you mentioned, and thank you for the shout out, by the way, really appreciate it. Uh, the Service Design Show on YouTube, on Spotify or any other podcasting platform, there you find an uh, interview with somebody in the service design space or on the fringes. Uh, and the other noteworthy things are, I guess, the uh, Circle community, which I host, and that's a community for in-house service design professionals. Uh, you can you can see it as a community of practice or a traditional guild. It's it's small, it's intimate, it's uh, it's about deep conversation. There is no Slack channel. We only have uh, monthly meetings, so 
servicedesignshow.com slash circle. And uh, the other thing that I feel is worth mentioning is uh, I run one training program. Um, I've, I've quit all the rest. And this uh, training program focuses on helping service design professional communicate the, communicate the business benefits of our work to non-designers and do that with more confidence. Um, that program runs three times a year and probably twice next year. It's called Selling Service Design with Confidence. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess, the other thing that's worth mentioning. Fabulous. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Mark. Uh, it's been great. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to share some links of the different case studies and other material we've shared in the show notes. And of course, the Service Design Show and the Circle will be in the show notes as well. Thank you very much, Mark. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for giving me this stage and opportunity to sort of explore this topic because, uh, like I said, I, I'm i just starting out and I'm just as curious as you are. And I hope that this will just spark more conversation in our field. So uh, thanks for having me. You have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. If you have any thoughts or comments about this episode, please reach out to us at Jacob Magno or David Griffith Jones on LinkedIn. You can also always write to us on Designing the Robot Revolution, also on LinkedIn. Thank you. Have a great day.